This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1799, the father of our country, George Washington, died. We're going to be spending the next hour telling his incredible story. And all of our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And let's start with the story. The poet Robert Frost once remarked that George Washington was one of the few in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. Washington could have become king of America if he wanted to. Instead, America's first general became the United States' first two-term civilian president, something a world familiar only with hereditary monarchs had never seen. Napoleon, as he lay dying on the island of St. Helena, condemned for having seized the power of an emperor, complained that his critics wanted me to be another Washington. Underneath the man who has become namesake to thousands of small towns, high schools, the nation's capital, and the 42nd state, whose image is reproduced endlessly on coins, currency, and stamps, and a huge bust carved into a South Dakota mountain, we find a man seeking to belong, longing for acceptance and respect. Parson Mason Weems, an Episcopal clergyman and sometime bookseller, is the source of some of those pious stories about George Washington, like chopping down his father's cherry tree. The real George Washington is born in a modest farmhouse in Northern Virginia on February 22, 1732, the first child of a middle-aged father and a second wife. In the mid-18th century, Virginia is a province of the British Empire. Its sparse population of mostly British descent see themselves as Englishmen subjects of the king, but the British see Virginians as crude colonists, second class in every way. Washington's father Augustine dies when he is 11. George inherits a farmhouse left in trust to his mother Mary, but the bulk of Augustine Washington's estate, including the sizable plantation at Mount Vernon, goes to his older half-brother Lawrence. Unlike Lawrence, who's educated in England, George's formal education ends when he is 14. Lawrence convinces Mary Washington to send George to him so that he can teach the boy the ways of society. I wish you were my brother, not my half-brother. I feel all of you is my brother. <laughs> so I am, George. Forever. As George's surrogate father, Lawrence offers guidance and contact with the wealthiest and most prominent family in Virginia, the Fairfax family which he has married into. The rough young man learns his social graces by quietly watching and imitating those in Lawrence's charmed circle. Acutely aware of his own lack of sophistication, fearful of social missteps, Washington develops lifelong habits of social reserve. He studies books on manners. He reads English magazines and translations of Roman classics so that he would have something to say at dinner parties. But to become one of the elite, George needs to make money. By 17, he is working as a frontier surveyor in the Appalachian Mountains. At 18, he buys his first piece of land. Washington, like all Virginians, needed land. 
land was the most valuable commodity uh, in, a, in, a, in an agrarian society. Uh, they needed land to replenish their tobacco fields, which wore out in four to eight years. They needed land for speculative purposes, for a rainy day. It was the one form of inheritance they could pass on that would be of great value to their offspring. The land west of the Appalachian Mountains bears a wilderness of inconceivable magnitude and unimaginable richness. I never knew it was so big, so rich, so green and untouched. Wherever we go, I feel that we're the first to ever walk this land. Indians are out here somewhere. Few Americans have seen it, but the British crown wants it. So does their arch rivals, the French, and both have to reckon with the Indians who live there. Washington has surveyed it, and in 1754, he comes to fight for it. After all, as a soldier of the British crown, he can rise higher in society than any mere surveyor. He is now 22, six feet three inches tall, a major in the Virginia regiment, and after years in the backwoods, as tough as the terrain. A smoldering cold war between England and France, fueled by conflicting land claims on two continents, hits a flashpoint in the Ohio Valley. In Europe, this conflict will be called the Seven Years' War, in North America, it is known as the French and Indian War. Eventually, the French will be driven from America, but at such a cost that the British will raise taxes in America to pay for the fighting. This leads to the American Revolution, in which the French aids America. The French will pay for this with higher taxes, which leads to the French Revolution. Washington is called to the Virginia Governor's Palace in Williamsburg. Now I should like to consult with you upon a matter of great import. The King of France, not satisfied with the vast province of Canada, has decided to make open trespass on British soil. He has sent soldiers into our territory, thus flouting British sovereignty established by God and King. They build forts, trade with our Indians and otherwise encroach upon our sacred rights. I have received orders from His Gracious Majesty to send an emissary demanding that they depart. Sir. Before you recommend someone, sir, I think you should know that the French are a treacherous people. This emissary will be in considerable danger. Yes, sir, but... Which is why I need someone who can travel hundreds of miles through unknown mountains, has experience with the Indians, and is possessed of a hearty constitution. You were about to recommend someone, sir? Your description fits only me, sir. Washington is sent out on his first assignment. His job is to lead 139 men to the forks of the Ohio River and build a fort there before the French can. His only military preparation consists of fencing lessons and having read two books on the art of war. But the French beat Washington to his goal, and now his Indian scouts tell him that the French are sending a party to ambush him. Washington leads his men on a night march towards the French camp, where he finds 40 men sleeping. At dawn, he strikes. A few minutes later, 10 French, including a French ambassador, and four Englishmen are dead. The French court brands him an assassin. The French and Indian War has begun. And when we come back, we continue with the life of George Washington. He died on this day in history in 1799. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of George Washington. And let's pick up where we last left off, with George Washington fighting for the British against the French in the French and Indian War. Later at the Battle of Fort Duquesne, Washington demonstrates that what he lacks in strategic ability, he more than makes up for in sheer bravery, when he has two horses shot from under him. Three years later, again at Fort Duquesne, two groups of Virginia militiamen stumble upon one another in the wilderness and mistakenly open fire on each other. Washington rides between opposing lines, knocking away guns on both sides with his sword. Fourteen are killed, twenty-six are wounded. Washington isn't touched. At twenty-four, he returns a hero to his fellow Virginians. But when he seeks a commission as a full British officer, not just a Virginia colonial officer, he is rudely rejected. Your arrogance defies me, sir. We are at war with France. And you, sir, were the man who fired the shot that started this war. He resigns from the militia in protest. Good day, sir. Denied advancement in the British Army, he realizes that if he is to make his mark in the world, he must do it as a civilian. What's so touching about his experience in the French and Indian War is that it was the making of him in a way that he did not expect. Instead of being the making of him as an element of the glittering gentleman's world of the British Virginia Empire, it was the making of his experience of human vicissitude and the forging of his character and I suspect the beginnings of those personal feelings which made it possible for him to be a rebel leader where once all he had wanted was to be an imperial guard. Then, in 1752, after having found the town of Alexandria, Virginia, George's half-brother and father figure Lawrence dies of tuberculosis. George becomes the owner of Mount Vernon. He's got lots of land, but little money to work it with, and he is alone. For 10 years, he has wooed a succession of young women, all of whom reject him, some because he isn't rich enough, and some because they are put off by his restrained personality. Then George is introduced to Martha Custis, a 27-year-old widow and mother of two. Martha is five foot tall with a pleasant appearance, is slightly plump, shy, and serious, universally liked and easy to talk to. She is also one of the most wealthy, marriageable women in all of Virginia. Her husband, Daniel Custis, has left her 17,000 acres of tobacco, hundreds of slaves, and several farms. I feel warm and at peace here in your dear presence. Forgive me, I don't know why I've been talking so much upon such early acquaintance. I'm usually more reserved than ladies. I too feel safe and at peace in your company, sir. That is all I need to know at this moment. The two only spend 20-some hours together before George proposes marriage. Here they come! Within the year, they are married, having spent only 15 days in one another's company. In marrying Martha Custis, Washington finally enters the world of the Virginia elite. She was uh, extremely supportive of him. She complimented him in many ways. Uh, she was... Um, 
She socialized more easily than Washington did, liked to talk uh, with friends and greet them, whereas Washington was, I think Washington was a little bit shy. Um, and he was, his size was intimidating. He used to frighten the children. But we're told that Mrs. Washington grabbed him by his lapels and pulled him right down to her face when she wanted to talk to him. Well, my future is to be a farmer and a husband. There'll be no British general telling me how to plow my field or love my wife. Credit extended by British tobacco agents enables Virginia planters to live opulently. But credit also puts them in debt and constant droughts keep devastating crop production. As tobacco prices fall, their debts mount. George and Martha face a dilemma. Washington faces economic collapse, but he's equally fearful of what others might think if he's unable to maintain his style of life. If I economize, Washington writes in a letter, such an alteration in the system of my living will create suspicions of a decay in my fortune, and such a thought the world must not harbor. Image is all important. Washington staffs his residence with 14 servants and seven slaves. But unlike many of his contemporaries who defend slavery, Washington believes that slavery debases both slave and slaveholder. Washington has the resources to pull himself completely out of debt if he sells all of his slaves. But he says, I refuse to participate in that practice of selling slaves. It's wrong. Jonathan Alton, Washington's longtime plantation hand, attempts to sell off the slaves. Washington responds immediately. I gave you no authority to sell any of our people. Colonel, you instructed me to cut costs because of our drought losses. I've told you before, Mr. Alton, I will not break up families. There will be no sale. By not selling slaves without your permission, we can go bankrupt. Joshua, unload them! Virginia law, of course, does not recognize slave families or slave marriages, but Washington does. Washington treats them like family, which is why after they're released following his death, the former slaves come back and take care of Mount Vernon and his and Martha's grave. Of all the founding fathers, Washington is the only one to free his slaves. But Washington is broke. He sees his and his fellow planters' problems as one of dependence on their British agents, the men who sell Virginia's tobacco in Europe and who purchase finished goods on their behalf in London. He was persuaded that they palmed off the shoddiest goods on colonials. All of this simply intensified his sense of anti-colonial discrimination, this time within the context of the imperial commercial system. Although Washington believes he grows the best tobacco in Virginia, he decides to stop growing the labor-intensive, soil-depleting crop and grows grains instead. He is soon selling his produce in Alexandria and buys finished goods from local importers and American manufacturers instead of buying through London agents. Within a decade, he is out of debt and a firm believer in American economic independence. As the British Parliament levies one burdensome tax after another on the colonies, Washington begins to see advantages in American political independence as well. And when British troops sail into Boston in 1768, Washington sees them as nothing more than tax collectors in red coats. Soon Washington joins Patrick Henry as one of the most influential members of the Virginia House of Burgesses. 
but along with his appointment also comes a learning curve. The first time that Washington ran, he neglected the usual practice of uh, treating the uh, voters with, with uh, alcoholic beverages on election day, and he lost. The next time, he was careful to arrange for some of his supporters to see that the, uh, the bar was open and plentifully supplied, and he won. As relations between Britain and the colonies deteriorate, Virginia sends Washington as one of its delegates to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. By the time the Second Continental Congress convenes one year later, fighting breaks out between the Massachusetts Minutemen and the British regulars. President recognizes Mr. Adams, Massachusetts. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. It is no exaggeration to say that between 1774 and 1777, Independence Hall in Philadelphia glows with more intellectual candle power than has ever burned in a single place before or since. Ben Franklin, John Adams, his cousin Sam, John Jay, the men of the Virginia delegation, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Edmund Pendleton, and then there is George Washington. If he'd had the kind of raw ambition that he'd showed in the Seven Years' War, the leading revolutionaries of 1775 wouldn't have touched him. They wouldn't have thought of making him a commander of the Continental Army. They feared a man on horseback. They feared their own army. And the idea of having an ambitious person would have horrified them. And when we come back more on the life of George Washington, he died on this day in history in 1799, and as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More after these messages. return to the life of George Washington, who died on this day in history in 1799, and this country's birth, in fact, this country's formation, well, it's unimaginable without knowing his life story. Regrettably, not enough schools in this country teach these stories, but that doesn't stop us. Let's pick up where we last left off. We will be left defenseless, gentlemen. She didn't speak much in debates at the Continental Congress. He did not have a strong voice. He wasn't an orator, but then neither were Franklin or Jefferson. I don't think Washington was intimidated by the power of the other intellects there, but he knew himself. He knew he wasn't an original thinker. What Washington could do was express himself with his presence, his uniform, and his habit of command. To symbolize the depth of his commitment to the cause of resistance, 
Washington arrives in Philadelphia wearing his splendid old blue and buff Virginia military uniform. He wore the uniform because he knew he looked good in it and because he wanted to be commander-in-chief. And he knew that if other people could see him in that uniform, they would see him as he saw himself in command. John Adams nominates 43-year-old Washington as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, which will wage a war for national independence. What is required now is one able man to build and to lead this new uh, Continental Army. And who do you propose of the Massachusetts delegates should lead this force? I have but one gentleman in mind, known to all of us. Mr. President, I propose as Commander-in-Chief our most honorable and esteemed delegate, the good gentleman from Virginia, Colonel George Washington. He is elected unanimously. I am truly sensible of the high honor the Congress has done me, but I tell you now, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington sees his appointment as one ordained by God. Your Continental Army awaits you at Cambridge, sir. In his letters, he refers to the war as the cause, with cause always capitalized, recognizing God's providence in their resistance. John Adams prophetically writes that Washington could become one of the most important characters in the world. Washington accepts the assignment, knowing that if he fails, he would lose everything he struggled so hard to gain. He would lose Mount Vernon. Then Congress approves the Declaration of Independence, asserting America's right to choose their own government, absolving all allegiance to the British crown. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political band which have connected them with another. It may have been Ben Franklin who said, if we don't hang together, we will most certainly hang separately. But it is Washington's neck that will feel the noose first. There is no turning back. When George Washington got to Cambridge to assume his new command of the Continental Army, he, all of his fears were probably reinforced. What he found, instead of an inspired band of revolutionaries, was a disorganized, dirty, undisciplined mob. I'd flogged the lot of them. And he was supposed to command them and make them an army and expel the British from North America and secure independence for the American people. Sir, the British are landing on Long Island. The battle is upon us. New York. 1776. Washington is outnumbered two to one. He grew during the war as a military commander, but at the beginning, um, he showed a considerable degree of incompetency. For instance, at the Battle of Long Island, he left the end of his line open. The British were able to run around it, then nearly catch his whole army and destroy it. Washington loses New York, which begins a succession of losses up and down Manhattan Island. A skirmish at Harlem Heights a defeat at White Plains, a disaster for Washington at Fort Washington, another disaster at Fort Lee. By November, his army has almost evaporated. Men have left or deserted to bring in harvests. Thousands have been captured or killed. Many have fallen ill, 
and the British are chasing his remnant of 5,000 across the New Jersey plain. By the end of 1776, the Continental Army was melting away. Uh, the jig seemed just about up. Washington was in despair. He started to talk about having to go hide out in the West. To his brother, Washington writes, I think the game is pretty near up. By December of 1776, the Continental cause was in very serious trouble. Washington's uh, soldiers were about to go home. Their enlistments were expiring. Many colonists were beginning to take up the British offer of pardon. They were going over to the enemy. The revolution was unraveling. And then, suddenly, at the very end of the year, in, in a bold and daring move, uh, Washington, with his small remaining army, swooped down on Trenton, New Jersey. There are few places in America where history pivots around the character of a single man. Washington's crossing the Delaware River in Trenton, New Jersey, is one of them. When Washington wins here, the tide turns with him. The watchword Washington has chosen for the Trenton attack is victory or death. 2,400 American troops cross the Delaware in the middle of a sleet storm on Christmas night, Captain. 1776. This weather will wet the men's powder. Our muskets won't fire. Then you must use your bayonet, Sergeant. Trenton must be taken. Yes, Many things go wrong, but the genius of Washington's attack lies in the date of its execution. In their barracks, the enemy has been celebrating Christmas with rum and ale. As night comes on, so does drunkenness, then sleep. At Trenton, Washington had to try something new. Conventional military tactics had failed him. He remembered the guerrilla tactics of the Indians from the French and Indian War. So he and his men snuck up on the sleeping Hessian soldiers. Washington slipping across the Delaware, taking advantage of Hessians who had had too much to drink, surprising them in the morning and winning a very small victory. It was not a great thing in military terms, but it was very important to the survival of the revolution. Take all the sea bread you can carry. The legends of barefoot soldiers leaving bloody footprints in the snow are not fiction. The tales of starvation, disease, malnutrition, and exposure at Valley Forge in the winter of 1778 are not exaggerations. One soldier recorded seeing a dead body so covered with lice that it was thought the lice alone had killed the man. Even after makeshift cabins are built and the men are out of the freezing wind and snow, each sentry still has to borrow clothes from his bunkmate before his turn at guard. As the guard rotates, so does the clothing. But there is one thing not lacking in the American camps, rum. It is calculated that rebel troops are consuming a bottle a day per man. When enlistments expire, Washington goes before his troops and offers a bounty to all who step forward and re-enlist. The drums rolled. No one stepped forward. Washington couldn't believe it. He was dismayed. He was... He was shocked. He was desperate. So he marched up and down the line, begging, pleading, cajoling his men to stay, telling them that the future of America rested with them. 
The drums rolled again. This time, one man stepped out, two men stepped out. And at the end, everyone who could stayed on. He could lead. He could inspire his men. They admired him. He looked the picture of a general. He was a responsible, careful tactician. I don't suppose any military genius, but he had the genius to lead. And indeed, he had the genius to lead. We'll be back after these messages with a final installment of the life of George Washington. Again, he died on this day in history in 1799. turn for our final segment, George Washington's life story celebrated here on this day in history. In 1799, Washington died. And let's return and pick up where we last left off. Deeply feeling the plight of his men, Washington constantly hounds the Continental Congress for supplies, trying to shame them by appealing to their sense of patriotism. Congress's typical response is to give Washington permission to commandeer what he needs from those living near his stationed troops. Washington refuses this invitation to rob his fellow citizens at the point of a bayonet, arguing that to do so will alienate the very people in whose name the struggle has been undertaken. A struggle also exists with his generals. Washington has as much trouble with some of them as he does with the British. Men like Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, men who'd been officers in the British Army, thought Washington was a bumpkin, someone who didn't know anything about an army or how to run a war. And they caused George a tremendous amount of trouble. They conspired, they talked behind his back, they spoke to members of Congress, they tried to discredit him, but in the end, he met them with patience and persistence, and their own incompetence ruined him. And George survived, and they didn't. Throughout his career, he appears touched by God. On horseback, he leads charges into the thick of battle, willfully exposing himself to cannon and musket fire, strolling through a hail of shot. Yet not once does a bullet or shrapnel ever even graze him. In April 1781, a British warship sails up the Potomac and trains her guns on Washington's cherished home, Mount Vernon. Most of Washington's Virginia now lay under British control. The governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, begs Washington to come home and save his state. Washington declines. When Jefferson called upon Washington to defend his home and his state, he was talking to a Washington who no longer existed. Washington's allegiance was no longer to the country he had grown up in, English Virginia but was an allegiance to the future. Washington's record on the battlefield is three wins, nine losses, and one tie, which is no source of pride. If we succeed, we have a chance to end the war here. But the best battle to win is the last one. Surprise and terror will be your main weapons. And Washington endures long enough to win it, the three-week siege at Yorktown. May Providence be with you. 
This is where the Revolutionary War ends on October 19th, 1781. When British General Cornwallis asks for the terms, Washington replies that the same honor should be granted to Cornwallis's surrendering army as was granted to the American garrison of Charleston. The point is not lost on Cornwallis. When Charleston fell to the British in 1780, the British refused to grant the Americans the honors of war, treating them as rebels and not as a legitimate army. Washington now demands the same humiliation of Cornwallis. But Cornwallis claims illness and sends a stand-in to Sir, the surrender ceremony. Earl Cornwallis is indisposed. I am second in command. In an attempt at insult, the British stand-in tries to hand over Cornwallis's sword to a French officer who had fought with the Americans. But the Frenchman refuses, directing him instead to Washington. Washington also refuses. He orders the Englishman to surrender Cornwallis's sword to General Lincoln. General Lincoln will accept the surrender. Who was the humiliated American commander at Charleston. Sir, my sword. During his campaign against the British, Washington is always outnumbered, typically outgunned, and always short on supplies, weapons, wagons, horses, and boats. Yet he repeatedly slips the British noose, choosing strategic retreat over honorable defeat. He doggedly wears his enemy down. The British lose the war, not so much because the Americans under Washington defeat them on the battlefield, but because General George Washington does not give up or go away. But Washington's most important performance has yet to occur. Let me set the scene. It's the end of the war. Uh, Washington's generals and his high staff officers are disgruntled. They haven't been paid. They don't trust the Congress. They're not so sure that it's such a good idea to give over control of this new nation to this bunch of squabbling uh, politicians. Many among them wanted Washington to assume greater power, in fact, maybe dictatorial power. His officers plan a meeting at their headquarters on the night of March 15th, 1783. They know how you feel, sir. So they do not want you there at the secret meeting. They will debate a move against Congress to demand their back pay, at gunpoint, if necessary. Washington knows he has to confront them. He begins writing a speech. He agonizes over every sentence and every word. He was ripped apart inside. He had suffered with these men. He'd watched them die. He'd watched them be wounded for their country. He knew what they had given up. He knew how Congress had mistreated them. And a part of him was attracted by their offer to be a kind of king. And he knew for certain that if he gave in to their offer, if he gave in to the allure of power, not only would he betray his country, but he would also betray the reputation and the honor that had been so hard for him to attain. He rides alone to the meeting. As he enters the building, the angry officers are stunned. But he sees no smiles, and there is no applause as he stands before them and begs them not to open the floodgates of civil war, which would surely drown the new nation in blood. If you will not lead us, sir, stand aside! I'll not stand aside. And if you try to silence me, you are asking for a nation in which freedom of speech is taken away. He knows he is failing. 
so he decides to read a copy of a letter from Congress, once again promising payment. It might work where his eloquence has not. He holds the letter in front of him and begins to read. I have a letter from a member of Congress. But something is wrong. And they are trying the officers draw closer. Then, Washington takes out a pair of glasses and puts them on. No one in the audience has ever seen him in his glasses before. The officers are shocked. Washington looks out at the men and speaks. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service of my country. With this, he brings them to tears. He steps down from the stage and moves slowly towards the door. The conspiracy collapses. All that is left are the formalities of history. He knew that his glasses would be a symbol of his own weakness and vulnerability. And he hoped, he hoped that this would persuade his men that by betraying their country in this manner, they were also betraying him personally. It's high political acting, but what he did was he staged that performance in order to rescue control of the new government from a disgruntled military and to return it to civilian power where it belongs. And in that moment, we have fused the extraordinary political performance of George Washington, the ambitious would-be leader, and the principles about politics and about civilian rule, which restrained him even in the moment of his highest acting. Nine months later, Washington surrenders his commission and his army to Congress. The grand irony of his life, which in the beginning was based on acquisition, is that he did not secure the reputation he sought until he gave something up, power. President Abraham Lincoln once said, to add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. The path of George Washington's life is one from frontier to capital. It is one of our greatest American stories. And of all those who helped create the new nation, none are more deserving of the title, Founding Father. And what a story, and great job as always to Greg Hengler. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And I wanted to leave on a final note from David McCullough. And in his terrific book, 1776, Towards the Close, he says this about Washington. He was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment, but experience had been his great teacher from boyhood. And in this, his greatest test, and what a year this was, 1776, he learned steadily from that experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. Soon after the victories of Trenton and Princeton, he had written, quote, A people unused to restraint must be led. They will not be drove. 
Without Washington's leadership and unrelenting perseverance, the revolution almost certainly would have failed. As Nathaniel Green foresaw as the war went on, he will be the deliverer of his own country. And no words were truer. On this day in history, General George Washington, President Washington, the founder of this country, no doubt, died on this day in history in 1799. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and today we're diving into one of my favorite books of the year, and we do a lot of books here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and see all that we do, and while we're there, or while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter, and again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories of the week, and the book is Kicks by Nicholas Smith, and it's all about the history of sneakers. Before we start the story, Nicholas, I want to read two things from your prologue. Quote, sneakers can help us stand out or blend in. They can be the item we build our outfits up from or an afterthought we slip on before running out the door. And every sneaker we wear says something about us in both subtle and not so subtle ways. This was something I never actually thought about until I did. Was this true with you? And what led you to write this history of the sneaker? Well, I'm not what you would call uh, a traditional sneakerhead. I don't have a closet full of 50 different rare sneakers that are, you know, limited edition or things like this. Uh, I approach this story from a runner's perspective. I, uh, running is my hobby, so most of my sneakers are kind of running sneakers. And the more I researched the story, the more I kind of saw the appeal of shoes as a fashion item. It's not something I really sat down to, to think about, you know, like many people I had maybe just one pair of casual sneakers to, to go outside and go to uh, the grocery store with. But as I researched more into this, I started to see kind of the appeal of having a sneaker for this outfit or a sneaker for that outfit. Here's a very common item that for some people, it is, it is the basis of their outfit and everything that they're building up from kind of rests on the sneaker. And for other people, it's the complete afterthought. It's the last thing that they throw on before going out the door. And I think that's, that's really the, the most interesting thing about sneakers. Indeed. And my 13-year-old girl, the poor shoe people, because she has almost no shoes. She and all of her friends have 8, 10, and 12 pairs of sneakers for precisely the reasons you discussed, Nicholas. So it's an interesting trend, what's happening with younger people. You also wrote this in the prologue. The history of the sneaker is, in a sense, the recent history of the United States. I thought that was such an absurd statement when I read it, Nicholas. And that is until I started reading the book and the story. So let's start off at the beginning with the story of Charles Goodyear. Talk about this American innovator and businessman, because it's quite a story. 
We, we can't really tell the uh, the history of the sneaker or really many of the other objects that are everyday objects without telling the history of industry. And to go back to the beginning, to the Industrial Revolution, uh, Charles Goodyear was an inventor, kind of a, a tinkerer, a person who would be stuck in his basement trying to solve the problem of rubber. Now, the problem of rubber in the early uh, Industrial Revolution was it was very susceptible to temperature. Uh, when it was cold, it would turn brittle. When it was hot, it would melt. So as you can imagine, rubber products weren't very versatile. Uh, Goodyear uh, had the idea that rubber could be stabilized. And through his years and years of tinkering with different mixtures, different ways of preparing it, he perfected vulcanized rubber, which uh, is more resilient uh, to temperature. Now, without vulcanized rubber, we couldn't have, of course, uh, sneaker soles, but we also couldn't have uh, car tires or you, you know, so many different parts uh, that we rely on uh, today. So this was kind of a very uh, important uh, invention that Goodyear stumbled upon. Indeed it was, but before sneakers could take off, we also needed the idea of leisure time. That, too, would develop as America and the world industrialized. Yeah, people forget that the concept of the weekend is kind of a a very new concept. Now, kind of the the forerunner to the weekend and vacations for the working class was uh, called Wakes Weeks. Now, in Britain, during the Industrial Revolution, they would have to close the factories periodically to uh, you know, maintenance the machines and do service work. And during this time, the workers would take their holidays, or, or what we would call holidays. What was once the area of just the upper class, just having uh, so much free time that you could devote to hobbies or different things, was finally starting to trickle down to everyone else. And to fill that free time, we saw the growth of sports, of games, of hobbies, of many different things. And let's talk about one of those sports. Let's talk about James Naismith. Who was he, for folks who aren't avid basketball fans, and why is he such a big figure in your story? So James Naismith, of course, was the inventor of basketball. He was also a teacher at a uh, a YMCA. Now, as the story goes, it was a very cold, very dark winter near the turn of the century, and uh, his students were stuck inside, and he didn't know what to do with them. You know, those days, physical activity was calisthenics, aerobics, gymnastics, not something that's very competitive, So Naismith nailed up two peach baskets, one on each side of his gymnasium, and he had a a soccer ball with him. And he had, you know, two teams try to get that basketball into the peach basket on either side. What he found was his his students took to it very quickly. He wrote down the rules and had them published in an academic journal, and this eventually spread to other YMCAs and then to other schools and then to other uh, universities across the country. So the game of basketball kind of benefited from having that set of rules travel around so quickly. Who's Chuck Taylor? We've seen his name stitched on Converse. He was a big player in your story. Now, Chuck Taylor isn't one of those figures uh, like that that was invented for a brand. He was an actual person. Converse was a 
company that's it's been around 100 years now today. But when uh, Chuck Taylor joined the company, it was the 1920s. Uh, he had just finished a very short career as a professional basketball player. And uh, w- when I say professional in those days, it's kind of more what we would consider uh, a semi-professional uh, basketball player. But he wasn't very distinguished, even among the players of the day. But he did have a good knowledge of the game. And this is what he brought to Converse when he was a salesman. He would travel from town to town putting on these basketball clinics. He's kind of the uh, the Johnny Appleseed figure of basketball. So in every town that he would visit, every clinic he would put on in schools or universities, he would teach the basics. He would teach some tricks. And, you know, of course, there was that little marketing message in there that, you know, in order to play basketball really well, you would need these Converse All-Star shoes. And after years of success, he decided to name the All-Star the Chuck Taylor shoe. So this is why, to this day, you you see his name stitched on Converse Chuck Taylors everywhere in the world. And when we come back, more with Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. is Our American Stories, and we're back with Nick Smith talking about his book, Kicks. We were just learning about the origin of Chuck Taylor's sneakers, shoes named after a salesman who was basketball's Johnny Appleseed. Can you think of a single product that's named after the salesman in a company, not the CEO, not the patriarch, the salesman? Because I racked my brain, Nicholas, and I couldn't think of one. You know, off the top of my head, no, and I'm sure if I thought about it for another couple hours, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't think of any. And that kind of speaks to the marketing genius that uh, Chuck Taylor had. One of the other things that Converse did to kind of develop the game further is they published this uh, yearbook, kind of a who's who book of basketball of the day. So if your team wanted to be in the yearbook, you just had to send a photo of your, your team in and where you played and, and who all the players were. And, of course, you had to wear the, uh, the Converse uh, you know, shoes in, in the, uh, the picture. But uh, in this book, Chuck Taylor would say, you know, here's, the, here's some tricks of the game. Here are the best players playing the game, and, you know, traveling from town to town. He really had an eye for who was good, who was an up-and-coming college player, and Coaches called him for advice on, well, who should my scouts go after? So he was kind of a a self-developed expert in the game, and this earned him a place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, you know, here we have another example of a a salesman not only having his name on a shoe, but ending up in a sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's remarkable how he deployed every tool in the toolkit to sell. And actually, it just sounded to me from reading your book that he didn't think of himself as a salesman, but an evangelist for this ministry called basketball. Exactly. And, you know, part of that comes from his connection to the game. Because he was an actual player, he saw maybe a different side of it that a normal salesman uh, wouldn't see. So there was a, uh, a level of expertise that also attracted people to these clinics. Here you would hear uh, a professional player really tell you how to play. Here, here are the real tricks. Here's what, here's what the people are actually wearing. So it, it did have a, uh, a certain degree of expertise when he went around. That's great. And let's talk about a track coach 
who had a tremendous impact on the world of sneakers, sports, and the culture. Let's talk about Bill Bowerman. He coached nine sub-four-minute milers at the University of Oregon, the most of any coach in America, four NCAA team championships, 24 NCAA individual titles, and coached 33 Olympians. Some call him the Bear Bryant, the Nick Saban of the running world. That's perfectly accurate. He really knew the sport in and out, but uh, he would do experiments with everything having to do with running. He would, in his backyard, mix up different combinations of rubber to create a, a good running surface to run on. He would make the clothes that his runners wore the, out of the lightest material he could find. But he also uh, experimented with shoes. You know, in those days, there weren't uh, as many choices for running shoes as we have today. He surmised that the best running shoe was probably one that was made specifically for the athlete. You didn't waste any extra material. It was it, it fit perfectly. It, it didn't have an extra ounce on it that it uh, that it didn't need to have. So he would use his runners as kind of human guinea pigs while making his uh, his own shoe concoctions. Over time, he got a little better and, and better at it. And uh, this caught the eye of one of his uh, former students, a uh, runner by the name of Phil Knight. Now, Phil Knight had just returned from a, uh, a trip to Japan business idea. And uh, while he was in Japan, uh, he met with the executives of a company called Onitsuka Tiger. Now, we, we kind of know this company more as ASICs today. Uh, but in the, uh, the 1960s, they were, they were Tiger shoes. They were still you know, fairly good shoes at the time. And Phil Knight says to his old coach, look, we can make you know, some money importing these shoes, these Japanese shoes to the U.S. market because they are of similar quality to the Adidas and Puma uh, shoes that are out there, but of course cost much less. So of course, Bowerman jumped at the chance not only to, uh, you know, to, to have a little side money, but to also have the ear of a shoe company that would finally listen to him. So of course, over time, their company, which is called Blue Ribbon Sports, uh, gained more and more success, and they eventually spun off to a company that we know today as Nike. Now, the bones of Nike are built into, of course, running shoes and making kind of the, the perfect running shoe. So it, uh, it, it definitely came from an area of expertise. Indeed. And, and talk about a breakfast that changed Bowerman's life and waffles. Bowerman coached in Oregon. And uh, as, as we know, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is very wet. You know, the running shoes of the day, the traction wasn't, wasn't great. Not, not enough to really grip mud, not enough to go over concrete very easily. And Bowerman was also obsessed with, with coming up some, some sort of pattern for the soul. And as the story goes, he's in the kitchen one Sunday. Wife is out. He sees the waffle iron, then he has an idea. It's like, wait a minute, the waffle pattern is the pattern I'm looking for. So he pours some molten rubber in the waffle iron. It gets stuck, and then he goes to the store to, to buy another waffle iron and, and you know does his test. And finally, he comes up with the, the waffle sole. Now, of course, the, the actual sole made for the shoes isn't made in the waffle iron. <laughs> the uh, waffle iron just provided the, the seed of the idea. But the, the waffle sole shoes proved to be a good enough grip for practically any surface. So this was kind of the, the beginning of the, uh, the jogging shoe uh, as we know it. And although jogging seems common and normal now, it wasn't always so, was it? You know, running as a hobby wasn't really, uh, wasn't really a thing. You know, if you 
went outside in the 50s and 60s and saw uh, someone running, it, uh, it it would kind of strike you as odd. You know, the, the only people that might go out jogging were, you know, boxers training and kind of the, the local town nutcase, and that was it. <laughs> but in the 50s and 60s and, and going on to the 70s, it started to become kind of a, a new trendy thing to go outside and run just for exercise. When Bill Barman traveled to New Zealand with his uh, relay team, the coach there for the New Zealand Olympic team said, you know, why, why don't you come on a race uh, or just, just a Sunday run with us? So he says, okay. You know, track coach going on a run. Okay, it, it seems easy. But uh, what he discovered was he, Barman, couldn't keep up with, uh, with any of the people. And some of them were much, much older than him. They blazed by them. And he was wondering, okay, why, why is it that I can't keep up with these people, but they seem to just go for miles and miles. And the New Zealand track coach had a, a exercise regiment called jogging. So Bowerman took this idea, brought it back with him to, to Oregon, and kind of started the uh, very small jogging boom uh, in Oregon. So go across the coast to New York now. So another jogging boom was taking shape. Fred Lebo was working in the fashion industry in Manhattan, but he was also uh, an early jogger. And he is known today as the, the founder of the New York City Marathon. The early New York City marathons just went around Central Park a few times. But uh, Fred Lebo uh, had the idea that uh, by expanding the marathon across all five boroughs of the city, it can really kind of act as a uh, an advertisement uh, for New York, not just an advertisement for the city, but also as an advertisement for jogging. You know, one person was saying that the best singles bar in New York was Central Park because you can just go up to uh, someone else that was jogging and strike up a conversation. So what uh, Fred Lebo did and what uh, Bill Barman did was kind of start an exercise movement, kind of the first exercise fad uh, that the U.S. has known. Dr. Ken Cooper is my personal doctor. I'm pretty fortunate to have him uh, for my annual checkups. And he wrote a book called Aerobics, which you talk about here as well. You know, I talked to Dr. Cooper just before this interview. I said, you know, what, what should I talk to Nicholas Smith about? And he reminded me that back when he was doing his work, and he had trained NASA astronauts, uh, worked in the Air Force, a, a remarkable doctor. But he was on this quest to prove that exercise, jogging, aerobics, would actually increase life expectancies and health. And he wanted to get people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s to start running. The medical establishment came down on him like a ton of bricks, that 50-year-olds would be dying in the streets, that this was a terrible idea. Well, there was kind of this thought that, uh, you know, any, any sort of physical activity was uh, dangerous if you weren't, quote-unquote, the, the right person. And uh, this is kind of something that... Uh, that uh, I'll, I'll come back to this New Zealand story that uh, Bill Barman went on when he saw, you know, a man come to his aid that was not only older than him, uh, but had survived a heart attack. Uh, this kind of, you know, woke something up in his mind that, you know, this, this cardiovascular exercise was in fact good for you. And, you know, what, what Dr. Cooper found was it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter really if you're young or old, if you're active, it does add years to your life. And when we come back, more of our conversation with Nicholas Smith, his terrific book, Kicks, the great American story of sneakers.
This is Our American Stories. We're back with Nicholas Smith, author of Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. And we were just talking about the rise of jogging and the start of the New York City Marathon. By the way, that first New York City Marathon you point out in the book had 55 finishers. That's, uh, that's quite, quite a movement from 55 to what we watch today on national television. Let's talk about women who were long excluded from running in marathons, even up to 1966. You tell one story of Bobby Gibb, who was 23. She entered the Boston Marathon, got her envelope, hoping to see an acceptance and a racing number. Instead, she found a note from the director of the race. I'm going to read it to you. Women aren't allowed, and furthermore, are not physiologically able. Talk about the reasons women were excluded from marathons, and talk about one woman, Catherine Switzer, who changed everything. So uh, women weren't just uh, excluded from marathons. Uh, They were pretty much excluded from uh, every other sport all through the 70s. And, uh, you know, even... uh, college sports and women's colleges were uh, so segregated in the 10s and the 20s that men weren't even allowed to to come and watch unless you were a a relative of the women playing. It was considered uh, unladylike for uh, women to exert physical uh, activity. Now, um, that slowly and thankfully began to change in the 60s and the 70s. And Bobby Gibb was one of those people who kind of said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, to run the Boston Marathon, whether or not women are allowed to run or not. And, uh, you know, it did, um, it did have some, uh, some pushback. And one of the people that uh, saw that pushback firsthand was uh, Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number. Now, she was able to enter by uh, entering just her initials, KV Switzer to get her number. But once one of the uh, race officials saw that a woman was running the Boston Marathon, he you know, walked onto the course. He tried to, to shove her saying, give me your number. And um, uh, Switzer's boyfriend kind of pushed him out of the way. And photographers riding by in a, in a truck, caught all of this on camera. So all of this was on you know, newspapers uh, shortly afterwards. And, you know, over time, uh, things started to relax in major races and women were allowed uh, to compete and there were women's only uh, races in the 70s or in the 80s and it uh, wasn't until the 1984 Summer Olympics that there was an actual women's marathon. All of this, by the way, Nicholas, was building up the market for running shoes and at the same time endorsements were also starting to influence the sneaker world. Before there was a Michael Jordan, there was a guy named Walt Clyde Frazier of the New York Knicks, and this is, by the way, back when they actually won games and even a championship or two. Well, uh, both Adidas and Puma uh, were starting to get the idea that, uh, you know, to sell a lot of shoes, we need to have a lot of people wear them. We needed to have a lot of players wear them. So uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had signed with Adidas. Puma was looking for uh, a big star of the day to sign with. And Walt Frazier was kind of a, he's a very extravagant player, both on the court and off. He had a, a, a fashion sense that people used to tease him about. His, his nickname, Clyde, uh, kind of came from the movie Bonnie and Clyde because he had this uh, hat that reminded his uh, players uh, of the movie. So he was very fashion conscious. 
so Puma approached him uh, with an idea uh, to have a signature shoe. Now, this would have been, you know, the first professional uh, signature shoe basketball player. Now, you think, okay, well, what about, uh, you know, Chuck Taylor? That was also a signature shoe, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't made when he was still playing in the game. It was named afterwards. So, you know, Clyde would have this very stylish uh, shoe uh, that he would wear in the games. And, of course, this is a key moment because this is around the time when sneakers started to move off of the courts, off of the playing fields, and into everyday life. People started wearing them uh, around the street. So the Clyde shoe was very popular, especially in New York, because you had one of the biggest New York Knick players wearing a shoe that you could also buy and, you know, just wear with any sort of outfit. And besides that, he's a very, you know, fashion conscious, stylish player. So any way to emulate him that you can afford, especially the shoe, is, uh, is going to sell. Indeed. And by the way, it's the first suede shoe, which I, I remember because I had one of these Clydes. My goodness, if it rained and you know New York weather, if it snowed, my Pumas, my Clydes never touched the ground. Yeah, there, there was a, uh, I think, a Puma executive who said something along the lines of, you know, we, we love it when it rains in New York because, or when it rains or snows, because that means we're going to sell a whole lot more suede shoes. Indeed. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision uh, by uh, by the company, but, uh, you know, you have to kind of be mindful of what the weather is like if you want to keep your sneakers looking very nice. And also in the 70s, the drought and water restrictions in California gave rise to a different type of fashionable sneaker, a more durable kind that could take the punishment dished out by skateboarders. Talk about that. This is one of my most favorite surprises of the things that I researched for this book. Now, skateboarding went through several different phases. In the 50s and 60s, there was kind of a, a sidewalk surfer craze where, you know, it was uh, something that you can do was kind of like surfing, but on land, but this eventually died out. But it wasn't really until uh, the 70s and the uh, California drought in the middle of the 70s that skateboarding started to take shape as we would recognize it today. The, the reason that happened stretched back to Scandinavia, to an architect that designed a kidney-shaped pool. And another architect, very famous architect in California, saw this and brought that kidney-shaped pool to a house he was building in California. And, of course, this uh, you know caught the idea eye of other developers and suddenly kidney-shaped pools were everywhere in California. So fast forward to the 1970s, you have this drought. Uh, there's not water to have in the pool, so all the pools are empty. So the, uh, the kids that are skateboarding are skateboarding because maybe the waves are flat that day. They're, they're, they come from a surfing background. And then they see these empty pools all over the city with uh, curved and sloped sides. So perfect for riding a skateboard up and down. And eventually they found that they can go very fast down these pool walls, shoot themselves up and do tricks in the air and then land. And this sort of thing was unheard of in skateboarding at the time. Tricks would be kind of, um, you know, handstands on a skateboard. This, this would be a good trick, not, uh, you know, flying through the air, turning around a few times and then landing. So as this kind of gonzo approach to skateboarding uh, happened, it started to gain more and more popularity as kind of a, an underground youth thing. But where shoes come into play is, as you can imagine, if you're going up and down pools, you know, you're going to fall, your shoes are going to take a beating. And there's this company called Vans, the, the Van Dorn Rubber Company that was based in California. 
And uh, they were famous for, you know, not making uh, mass-produced shoes that were the same everywhere. If you wanted to have a shoe in a certain pattern, they would make it for you. They they had the uh, the shoemaking machinery. They had the uh, retail outlets. So they were really kind of, uh, you know, completely vertically integrated. And after a while, they saw that, you know, people were demanding shoes that kind of uh, needed to hold up um, to a, a beating. They were, van shoes were tougher uh, than other shoes at the time. So skateboarders of the day kind of gravitated towards this, that, you know, it's better to buy a, uh, a shoe that was more durable than a shoe that would you know, fall apart and you would have to replace over and over. So the uh, skateboarders that were skating the pools, they, um, you know, tended towards van shoes because they were tough and also because they were stylish. You can get them in you know, almost whatever color uh, that you wanted, which was you know a little bit unheard of at, at the time when shoes came in white, they came in black, or they came in like a dark navy blue, and that was it. So you had a combination of a uh, an underground subculture that had a very a specific demand for a shoe, and also there was this fashion angle that they wanted it to, you know, look how they wanted it to look. So this a combination of all of these different factors kind of contributed to not just the success of fans, but just uh, the concept of the trendy sports shoe. And more on the American Sneakers story here on Our American Stories. back with Nicholas Smith and we're talking about his book a really great read kicks about the history of American sneakers the next big influence in the world of sneakers didn't come from the sports world it came from the music world breakdancing and then soon after rap artists like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys would have their influence on the world of sneakers talk about that period so before we get to the 80s, we'll have to stretch back a decade and talk about the 70s. Now, earlier I mentioned, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would have the, you know, Adidas shoe and Walt Frazier would have his Puma shoe. These shoes proved very popular in the, the budding uh, hip-hop movement. You know, as people were starting to develop uh, and invent breakdancing, people wanted to have a, a, a style all to themselves. So these breakdancing crews would often dress the same and, you know, they would all be wearing the same pairs of Adidas or they would all be wearing the same pairs of Nike or of the, uh, the Puma shoe. So these shoes were already kind of built in to a subculture. Now, when a hip hop group like Run DMC comes along, they originally didn't have the uh, the style that we know them of today. They didn't have the black leather jackets, the Adidas track suits, the the hats, or the uh, the famous black and white superstar shoe. They dressed in you know kind of uncool looking plaid suits. But it wasn't until they started dressing like the uh, the Queen's neighborhood uh, that they came from that they started to kind of develop their own identity. And part of this identity came in that Adidas superstar shoe. Now, of course, if you have a very popular group, you know, wear a certain style of shoe, and if you're, you know, a fan of that group, you're probably going to wear the 
the shoe or the brand yourself. And there was a, a famous incident where they were at a, a concert in Madison Square Garden. And just before they performed their famous song about their favorite shoe, My Adidas, they asked everyone in the audience to, to hold up their shoes. And all of these Adidas shoes went in the air. Now, fortunately, a uh, executive from Adidas was in the audience and he saw the power that uh, the band had. And they were the first non-sports figures to have a shoe contract for an athletic shoe company. Let's talk about the year 1984 and Nike. It was a big year, but it was a bad year. They just posted their first ever quarterly loss. They were even into layoff mode. They needed to do something big and in the nation's biggest sport when it came to sneakers, and that's, of course, basketball and the NBA. You write about the fact that there were three big-name prospects that everyone thought Nike should pursue. John Stockton, who ended up at the Jazz, Charles Barkley at the Sixers, and Hakeem Olajuwon at the Houston Rockets. But a fourth name came up. Talk about number four, because he would help transform the company, and Nike made a big and astronomical bet on number four. Nike had shoes on players, but they didn't have shoes on the right players. And they wanted to kind of target some up-and-coming names in the 1984 draft. Now, that fourth name, Michael Jordan, they could have just offered him the same shoe contract as they were going to with, uh, with John Stockton and the others. But uh, the key point here is we're not going to uh, give Jordan just any old shoe contract like we've been giving the pros for the past couple of years. We're going to build an entire line, an entire signature shoe line and apparel line around Michael Jordan. Because they did this, and because Jordan was such uh, an electric player, they kind of invented something new. Now, of course, there was Clyde Frazier earlier, but there wasn't really the full force of a company's marketing behind one single player, one single player kind of presented as his own brand, the Air Jordan brand. And as Jordan started to get better and better, of course, people wanted to you know, know why was he so good? Uh, a couple years after they started coming out with the Air Jordan shoe, they, they wanted to try something new with the marketing. So they hired a very young director named Spike Lee to direct a series of commercials starring him as his character, Morris Blockman from his first movie, and Michael Jordan. Now, these commercials were revolutionary for the time. Other sneaker commercials starring NBA stars were a bit cheesy. They were a bit you know, they, they they didn't really sell the product as much as, you know, okay, Larry Bird is wearing, you know, this brand of shoes, so you should also wear it. But what the uh the Spike Lee and, and Michael Jordan commercials did, they were they were funny. They were lighthearted. They didn't seem quite like a shoe commercial. They were kind of a, a comedic pairing with uh, Michael Jordan acting as the straight man. Now, the big tagline from these uh Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials was, you know, what makes Michael so great? Is it, uh, you know, the, the way he jumps? Is it, uh, you know, his haircut? Is it, is it the shoes? And is it the shoes? This became kind of the, uh, you know, the, the seed that Nike wanted to plant in everyone's mind. Okay, well, if, you know, Michael can do all these things in the Air Jordan shoe, well, maybe the Air Jordan shoe can help you play basketball better. Maybe it can help you jump higher. So there was kind of this 
this magic that Nike was tapping into with these Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials. And I don't know if this was conscious of them at the time, but it's a, kind of a very old idea of the magical shoe. Now, what, uh, what makes Cinderella a princess? It's the glass slipper. What makes Dorothy come back from the land of Oz? It's her ruby slippers. What makes Michael Jordan jump so high? It's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. By the way, you, you also talk about this remarkable business deal. Jordan got royalties not only on the sale of each Air Jordan sold, but all Nike Air sneakers. What a big risk to take. But by the way, what big rewards for Jordan and for Nike, that deal? Oh, for sure. You know, without really the success he had on the court and without the success he had with Nike, we wouldn't have an entire Jordan brand spun off from Nike. It's funny, he's, you know, been out of the game for so many years but Nike Air Jordans are, you know, still still worn by people everywhere. You know, they still come out with new uh, Air Jordans all the time. There's new versions of uh, different colors of the old Air Jordan shoes from the 80s. So it was kind of a uh, a unique way that really paid off for both the player and the company. Tell the story of where Nike got their new slogan, Just Do It, because it's a pretty unlikely source. This kind of came, you know, from uh, the least likely source that you can think of. There was a, a murderer uh, on death row, and he uh, was, you know, okay, well, what, what are your last words? And they were, you know, along the lines of, okay, well, let's do this. Now, one of the executives saw this, he kind of thought, okay, well, I'll file that away. And it, when it became time to, you know, think up of a, a new slogan for the company, this popped into his head, just do it. You know, we know now that uh, Just Do It, it's as much a part of Nike as the, the swoosh is. So it's, it's so baked into the company's DNA that it's difficult to, to separate them. And I should also add that uh, when the uh, Just Do It slogan came out, it, it became kind of a, uh, a rallying cry, a point of pride for people. It, uh, you know, inspired them to, to do more. It inspired them to get out and exercise. Uh, there was one story where someone wrote into the company saying, I, I finally left my husband because I heard this slogan. So it, uh, it kind of, uh, again, tapped into a much greater idea uh, that was there that, you know, people sometimes need that little push. I can only guess most Americans now uh, have at least a few sneakers in their closet. We had started off this way, we'll come close to ending this way. But I look around now, Nicholas, and I mean, people are wearing sneakers almost all the time in business casual situations. I see men in sneakers routinely and women. Yeah, sneakers have kind of become the uh, the default shoe, whether we are going to the office or going to the uh, the supermarket. It's, uh, you know, what we... Uh, throw on to look nice or it's what we throw on just to have something on our feet and we can thank the uh the birth of casual friday for bringing the uh, sneakers into the boardroom indeed last thing what surprised you most telling this epic story of the sneakers i know i was sideswiped by this book and absorbed because in so many ways just as you had said early on this is the story of 20th century american culture I guess what surprised me most when I looked into it more and more, sneakers were there at so many different junctures in the 20th century. You know, even U.S. soldiers trained in sneakers going to uh, World War II. What I'm fascinated by is, let, let's take the Converse All-Star, for example. This is a shoe that, you know, if you're a, a punk rocker, you might wear, or if you're a, 
you're a teenager wanting to look hip, uh, you might wear. Or if you are, are a little bit older, may have worn in gym class many decades ago. It's a shoe that, that means so many different things to so many different people. I, I recently got back from a uh, vacation in Venice, Italy, and I saw an old nun wearing a pair of Converse all-star sneakers, the, the Chuck Taylor shoes. So it, it's really a shoe that's, that's just become almost generic, even though it was at one time a very specialized piece of athletic equipment. Yeah, I can't think of any American fashion brand in which I actually wore Chuck Taylors and I play I played high school basketball and my daughter is wearing Chuck Taylors the old man and the daughter wearing the same exact sneaker where else in American fashion exactly and you know <laughs> that that sneaker will probably be around for a, a long long time after that well Nicholas thanks so much for your time and thanks for kicks the great American story of sneakers well thank you for having me and that was Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, and it's available on Amazon. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org if you like what you hear and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of the week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and just sign up. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you're hearing. Nicholas Smith and the Sneakers Story of America. Nicholas Smith, the stories of sneakers in America. Here on Our American Stories.